chapter 19, Gospel of Luke, chapter 19. Beginning in verse 28 here this morning, we want to look at the triumphal entry. As this is Passion Week, and this would have been the day, the Sunday, that the Lord would have came in for his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Remember, our text this morning is about the beginning of Passion Week, okay? That the last week of Christ's earthly ministry is going to conclude here with his death, burial, and resurrection. So we'll hear about that all week. Today we want to focus in more on the beginning of that very week and how the crowds greeted him as he was coming into the city, just as just as been prophesied from the very beginning. And then, of course, we want to look at, uh, a little later on this week, we want to look at uh, the crucifixion on Friday, and then, of course, the resurrection on Sunday. So we're going to cover all that. We'll cover his death and burial on Good Friday, and then we want to talk about the significance of his resurrection next Sunday. But for now, we want to focus in on this triumphal entry. What does that mean? What does that look like? And uh, and to do that, we really have to get an idea of what the climate was like, when, what the culture was like when Jesus was coming in for his triumphal entry. And I would just tell you that things were at a very high tension, almost like today, very high tension politically, culturally, socially. There was a lot going on. And it, if you will, kind of was like a heavy fog over the city, right? You can have, Sometimes you can just come into a city and just feel the tension. That's what it would have been like then. They saw Jesus many in many different ways. Some saw him as a prophet who was uh, fulfilling some uh, who was fulfilling what God had proclaimed. Some saw him as a conquering hero. They saw him as the one who was going to come in and and uh, crush the Romans and be able to get them out of the city and that he would be a, a military hero and that that's how he would come in. He'd come in on a white stallion like David did when he rode into the city as a conquering hero like generals of that day. All the Roman generals in that day would have came in on a white stallion with their uh, the conquered king in tow, normally in chains behind them, and they would lead them in a huge procession into the city to say, look, we have conquered the enemy. And some even saw him as the Messiah. That was a small percentage, but some did. But they all are going to welcome him, and they're going to say, Blessed is the king. Blessed is the king. Now, everyone in Israel knew that the Messiah would rule in Jerusalem, right? They knew that he would be a king there, uh, in just like uh, David, right? They knew that that would happen. And... Uh, the, the Old Testament makes that very clear. But since the Garden of Eden, from the very beginning, right, from the first gospel in Genesis 3.15, everybody's been waiting for that moment when the Messiah would come back and come into Jerusalem. Also, I want you to know that the Passover feast is about to begin. Now, remember the Passover feast is would have brought in all, it was one of the required feasts for all Jewish men. So it's one of those feasts that everybody would be coming in for. They'd be bringing their families in tow. And uh, so you would have people from all around the country, all around, even outside. And there was this fever pitch about this new person who was here who might be the Messiah, who might be the one. 
Historians tell us that it was not unusual at that point in time to have two or three million people converge into a city. Now imagine what would happen if we just took Portage here and said, well, this is what our normal life looks like. And then two to three million people came in to the city. I'm not even sure where we put them all, right? Sure make Willow Creek a nightmare. Anyway, there'd be two to three million people in here for the Passover. Remember, in the Passover is when they'd have the sacrificial lamb, right? Remember during the uh, uh, during the Exodus, just as it was at the beginning of the Exodus, that that was the yearly reminder that helped the Israelites to never forget that they were set free by the blood of the lamb. Remember, they would take the lamb and put it over the doorpost, right, before the exodus. It was God's hand that was going to free them. It was God who saved them, right, as the as death came through. If you had the blood over the lentil, then you were saved, right? So that they would, they, uh, God would pass over you in judgment, right? And then he killed all the firstborn. But now, this week... The Lamb of God is about to be slain. Not just any lamb, not a sacrificial lamb, but the Lamb of God is about to be slain. Who would then, once and for all, provide the remission of sins through the shed blood of the Lamb of God. Now, thirdly, Jesus had just performed a miracle that had left people very stunned. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to John chapter 11. And let's just refresh our memory of what's going on. I just want to kind of give you some more context here of what's happening before Jesus arrives. And because of this miracle, I want you to know that the crowds were even bigger. The expectations were even higher. The buzz around the city was even more pronounced. So John chapter 11, verse 45, Therefore, many of the Jews came to Mary and saw what he had done. What had he just done? He just raised Lazarus from the dead. And so the city was buzzing about, who is this Jesus? Who is this? So notice in verse 45, Therefore many of the Jews had come to Mary, saw what he had done, and did what? They believed in him. Notice that. When Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, many of the Jews believed in him. Then in verse 46, but some of them went to the Pharisees and told them of the things which Jesus had done. Isn't that how it always is, right? You hear about Jesus, then some believe and some don't believe, right? Some turned to him in faith, others did not. And it's still that same way today when we hear the gospel. So uh, notice how the Pharisees reacted then in verse, beginning in verse 47 till verse 40, till through verse 53. Therefore, because of that, right, therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council and say, and were saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. And if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nations. Do you hear that? Wow, if he keeps doing miraculous things like that, people are going to, more people are going to believe in him. And then where will we be? What about our exalted position as the Pharisees and the leaders, the religious leaders? We'll be out on our ear. And we're going to make the Romans unhappy, and that's not going to be good for anybody. That's their reasoning. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was the high priest that year, said to them, 
you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you, for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation uh, not perish. Little did he know how true that would really be, that he was actually prophesying. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, verse 51, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. Verse 52, and not only for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Notice verse 53 then. From that day on, they planned together to kill him. So Jesus just raises Lazarus from the dead. One group says, I believe in him. The other group says, let's kill him. That's what happens. Now, it's difficult for us on this side, right? You know, a couple uh, millennium later, right? 2,000 plus years here to kind of grasp what was going on here at that time. It's hard for us. We don't really have a lot of pomp and ceremony for us today, right? We, we might see it like when uh, in England, one of the royals gets married, right? We get to see kind of all that pomp and ceremony, but that's not really part of our fabric of culture here. So we don't, we're not really that aware of it, but I want you to know that these people uh, were looking for the Messiah. They've been looking for the Messiah for a long time. And as Jesus has been going on, remember at first he was saying, don't tell anybody, don't tell me, my time has not yet come. Well, now his time has come. And so now the crowds are at a fever pitch, which is exactly what he knew would happen. And the people are excited. They're anticipating. They want to know if this is really it. And they couldn't wait for a king to arrive, but not to, not to free them from their sins, but to free them from the Roman oppression. So, as we come now to this passage, I want you to look at the ways in which the people responded. And in turn, the way in which we should welcome the king. They're welcoming the king in their lives. And then I want us to see how those four ways apply to our life as well. Well, before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask him to bless our time together in his word. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for the immense privilege I have to open up your wonderful truth. And I pray, as always, Lord, even as we prayed earlier today, that you'd give us open hearts and minds and ears, Lord, to your wonderful truth. That we wouldn't just be hearers of the word, Lord, but doers of the word. That we wouldn't just gather this knowledge and be puffed up by it so that we could astound our friends and family with how much we know about the Bible, but then not apply it to our lives. Father, just the opposite. We want to gather this knowledge so that we can indeed apply it to our lives. Not for our glory, not so we can be puffed up, not so that we can pridefully boast of how much we know about scripture, but rather, Lord, so that you would be glorified and honored through us, through the way that we live our lives, through the words that we say, and how we interact with the world and with each other. Father, I pray that you would bless this time. May you be honored and glorified through it all. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So you're in Luke chapter 19 now. If you'll head back to our text, Luke chapter 19, beginning in verse 28. The first way that I want you to see how they welcomed their king 
is obediently. They welcomed their king obediently. Look at verse 28. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. So he's, he's heading on, right? He's heading up to Jerusalem. And you can see now that, uh, that Jesus is really set about this mission about which he's going to go, right? He has set his face towards Jerusalem. Understanding, and understand this, that he knows what awaits him. He knows what awaits him, and yet he is setting his face and marching forward, even though he knows what is going to happen. This is why the Lord had, this is why God the Father had sent him. This is why God the Son had obediently and willfully chosen to do this. It's this time. The time has been prepared beforehand, and now that time is now that he is going to enter and fulfill what God the Father had determined from eternity past. And we don't know if, uh, you know, to me, I would imagine that the disciples are probably not real thrilled about this last part of the journey. Remember, they had just had the upper room discourse. They know that Jesus has said he's going to die. They don't really understand the full implication of that, but they're probably not real excited at this point, knowing what lies ahead and what Jesus has been saying. They know that he is really a condemned man walking towards Jerusalem. In verse 29, then, when he approaches Bethpage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sends two of his disciples. So he arrives at Bethany, which is just a couple miles east of Jerusalem. It's not far away at all. And uh, the Gospel in John tells us that he was there six days before the Passover, right? He was there six days before the Passover, which would have been on a Sabbath, now, we know if you read all the accounts together of this triumphal entry, if you put all of them together in all four Gospels, we know uh, that after sunset, he was invited into the home of Simon. Remember, Simon invited him in, the leper. And that's where he met with, the, uh, with Lazarus, who had, was already risen. And then his sister served him a meal. So we know all of that occurred on that day. Then that's also the day after supper that Mary anointed his feet with the oil. Just kind of harmonizing all of those Gospels together for you. The next day was Sunday, and then Jesus was, begins his final walk into Jerusalem on that day. And the text tells us that he's on a hill called the Mount of Olives. And it's at that hill on the Mount of Olives that he tells two of his, he calls two of his disciples together and gives them a special assignment. Now, the Mount of Olives is a place that you should know well in Scripture because a lot has happened there and a lot will yet happen there. It's on the Mount of Olives that the Lord is to appear. Keep your place here. Go back to, uh, keep your thumb there in Luke, but go back to Zechariah. So if you're heading backwards, the last book of the Old Testament is Malachi, and right before that is Zechariah. So you don't have far to go. So if you're in Matthew, keep turning left, and then you'll get to Malachi, or Malachi, the Italian prophet. Sorry, I had to fit that in there. No, just, Mal just Malachi, and then you have Zechariah. Right? Zechariah chapter 14, verse 4.
Uh, matter of fact, let's pick it up at verse 1, just so we know. Behold, a day is coming for the Lord when the spoil taken from you will be divided among you, for I will gather all the nations against Jerusalem to battle. The city will be captured, the houses plundered, the women ravished, and half of the city exiled. But the rest of the people will not be cut off from the city. Then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations as when he fights on a day of battle. Look at verse 4. And in that day... His feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which is in the front of Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives will be split in its middle from the east to the west by a very large valley, so that half of the mountain will move towards the north and the other half towards the south. So we know that when the Lord returns, we know at the rapture, we meet him in the air, right? His feet don't come in. His feet don't land on this earth, right? But then, when he comes back, his feet will be, right? When he comes back, his feet will be set on the Mount of Olives. So this is also, remember, where uh, Jesus spent his last week on earth here, right? Is on this place. He spent his nights there. That's also where he gives the Olivet Discourse at the Mount of Olives. This is also where he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. So this place is, has a lot going on. This is also the place in Acts chapter 1 where Jesus ascended from. All of that is on the Mount of Olives. So it's a very, very important place. Now look at back in our text in Luke chapter 19. Let's pick it up from there in verse 30 and 31. So he sends off the two disciples, right? He says, go into the village ahead of you, and there as you enter, you'll find a colt tied tied on, which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you why you are untying it, you shall say, the Lord has need of it. Now, Jesus really is pretty darn specific here about what he wants, right? Here's where you're going to go. Here's what you're going to see. Here's what someone's going to say to you when you go to take this colt. Now, he already knew that the colt would be there, didn't he? It's not a surprise. He's not guessing, right, that this might occur. And if you read Matthew's account of this, uh, it tells us that the colt was a, a donkey and that it was with its mother, right? It's never been sought. It was with its mother. So the, the disciples are instructed to bring them both uh, back to Jesus. And perhaps perhaps maybe the colt wouldn't be so rambunctious if mom was along. Funny how that works. But notice also that when they go to get this little colt, Jesus is putting it into place. He's really fulfilling another prophecy. And this one is in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And if you read uh, the book of Zechariah, you're going to know, like in this section right here, there's part about his first coming and then the second advent. The first advent and the second advent. It's all in the same little section here in chapter 9. So look at Zechariah 9, verse 9. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout in triumph, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. He is just and endowed with salvation, humble, and mounted on a donkey, even on a colt, the foal of a donkey. This is exactly what happens here. Now, the amazing thing about this is that 
Zechariah prophesied this 500 years before Jesus was on earth here. Back in Luke, then, we pick it up in verse 32. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them, as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. Now remember, when we were going through the book of Judges, right? We had the judges had the 30 donkeys and the 30 sons. Remember I told you that donkeys were a sign of royalty. I mean, a sign of money. You had some money if you had donkeys. They were very expensive. Uh, only very wealthy people had them, and, and typically the wealthy people were the royalty. And so that's how they were uh, that's how they were perceived. So to have to know that the donkey was there and then to just be able to get up and then, of course, someone's going to ask you for this. It, it Today would be very similar to if you had a Lamborghini parked out in the front of your house and somebody just came along and said, uh, hey, I need that. And we'd be like, hey, what are you doing in my car? And we just said, oh, the Lord needs it. Okay, well, here you go. Take the keys. Right? It would have been about the same. Probably not our first reaction, but this is all fulfilling prophecy. Now, keep in mind that many of the followers of Jesus were hoping how? That he wouldn't come in on this little foal of a donkey, right? That's never been ridden before, but what? On the white steed, the white stallion, right? The, with the Romans in tow. But that's not how he's coming in. Because they're thinking in their mind, if you can raise Lazarus from the dead, if you've got power over life and death, who are these Romans? They're no match for you. He must be the Messiah. But they're thinking the Messiah as a military hero. They're thinking of him as a conquering hero. That's how they're thinking. So they were longing for this conquering king, this one who would come in and destroy the Romans and give them back their land. They wanted a king like David was when he came in on his white stallion into Jerusalem. That's what they were looking for. That's what they thought would happen. So you can imagine the confusion in their minds when they see Jesus coming in, not on this white stallion, this powerful steed, but this little tiny foal of a donkey. It's not even a real donkey. I mean, it's like a baby donkey, right? It's, it's like uh, donkey light, okay? There's like, no way. So you can imagine they're confused. He's not entering the city as this conquering hero. He's entering this city how? As the prince of peace. Not the military king, not the military warrior, not the conquering king. So many in that crowd, they probably wouldn't have understood what was going on there, this humble king on the foal of a donkey. But notice that the disciples, notice what they did. I don't want you to miss this in that little passage here. Did they understand completely what was going on when Jesus said to go and get this donkey? And they're like, hey, the guy's going to tell you he's going to say this, and you just say the Lord needs it. Did they understand all that? Did they understand the whole purpose? Did they understand all the symbolism? Did they get a? No. They didn't understand what was going on. But what did they do? They obeyed, didn't they? They obeyed and did what God had told them to do. I'm sure they were confused. I'm sure they didn't really understand the whole plan. I'm sure they just weren't, you know, God wasn't, didn't make that all privy to them, that they understood how this was all going to unfold, unfold in human history. I'm sure they were probably thinking, what? This isn't how it's supposed to go. 
Where, where's the white steed? Where, where's your armor? How are they going to fall to you, this great military power of the time, which incidentally held power for hundreds of years? Nobody could defeat them militarily. And this is supposed to be the guy? You can imagine how confused they are at this point in time. And remember before that even happened, remember what the disciples were doing before the triumphal entry? They were arguing about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom, right? That's what they were thinking, thinking to themselves. Wow, hey, you know, just want you to know, Jesus, you know, we'd like to be on your right side there if that's okay. We'd like to be that person. But now, instead of figuring out what cabinet position they're going to hold, right, in this great military conquering uh, regime, they find themselves running around chasing donkeys, right? Trying to find out how they're going to be able to get this for Jesus. For Jesus. But I want you to notice that even though they didn't understand the plan, they still obeyed. Even though God hadn't unfolded at all, they still obeyed. Beloved, are you quick to obey like the disciples? Are you holding off and waiting until God really unfolds the whole plan for you? want to make sure you've got all the facts in line from God before you step forward. When the Bible has a very clear command for something in your life, do you follow it obediently or do you waver and try and process that out a little bit, make sure it lines up with your lifestyle? If you're thinking right now of something very deliberate in your mind that you're doing that is deliberately disobedient, I pray that you would confess that. Give that to the Lord. Well, remember that this king wants an obedient heart. Remember what Jesus told the disciples in John chapter 14, verse 15. Do you remember what he said there? You don't need to turn there. I'll just remind you real quick. He said this. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So that's obedience. That's what's going on right here. Obedience is not negotiable. It's not optional. They aren't the 10 suggestions, right? They're the 10 commandments for reference here. So the first way that we welcome this blessed king is through our obedience, through our obedience. The second way that they're going to welcome the king here is through gifts, I want you to see this in gifts. Now, there are three gifts that are given this day. The first one we've already talked about, right, is this little colt, right? Someone had given that as a gift. And uh, anyway, they, uh, he, he has the colt, and, of course, it's, it's his anyway, right? Since he's God, there would be no colt without him. But, uh, so rightfully, it's his anyway, but anyway, it's given to him as a gift. Look at verses 35 and 36. They brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. And as he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. So the second gift here is they're taking their cloaks off and putting it down in front of the colt as he's walking on his way into Jerusalem. They're willingly taking off all of their outer garments and placing them on the road in front of them. Now, can you imagine... All of this commotion, what would be going on here? 
as people, as the cult is moving in and Jesus is on his back and people are taking their coats and their cloaks off and laying them down in front so that even the cult that he's riding on has this carpet of their coats. Now remember, this little cult had never been ridden before. Do you remember that in our text? And now you've got people moving around with palm leaves, laying those down, taking their people, gathering around, trying to touch Jesus, swarming around this little cult, but yet marches on. It's funny that that sign of taking your cult off and laying the palm trees down, or the palms down, which we haven't got to yet, was a sign of royalty. So they're actually giving gifts to the king as they do that. The third gift is not mentioned in, the, in Luke's account. It's mentioned in Matthew's here, and that's that they cut the palm branches off from other trees and laid those down as well. Now, that was a common way to welcome a king when he returned from victory, from a victorious battle. That was one of the things that they would do. Also, palm branches were a sign of joy and victory, because where do you find palms at? You find them in the desert near water. So they were a sign of life and life-giving activity and joy. So that's where you would find palms. They even placed them on graves as a sign of eternal life. So by laying these palm branches down on the road, the people were signifying that they recognized that Jesus was a victorious king, that he was the one who gives eternal life to those who were wandering out, if you will, in the desert of life. So we have the colt, we have the cloaks, we have the branches, all point to who Jesus is, don't they? They're all pointing to the royalty of this king. So what started off in the Passover as a feast is now turning into this giant celebration, if you will, honoring the king. Beloved, let me ask you this. What are you giving to welcome the king into your life today? What is it that you're giving? Is he asking you to give something valuable of yours today? You know, as soon as we say that, immediately we start thinking of temporal things, right? Like financial resources. But maybe that's not what God's asking you for at all. Maybe the thing he's really asking for you are things like time or to exercise your spiritual gifts, or mercy, or compassion with others. Perhaps those are the things that God is laying upon your heart. It has nothing to do with financial resources. Is he longing for you to give something that you consider essential? Like our love, or our compassion, or our mercy, or even ourselves? Have you been holding out an expression of joy to the Lord? Have you been giving him that joyfully already? Are you holding that back? Have you been holding back your love for Jesus because you're a little too concerned what others might think? Have you not expressed your love for Jesus because of scorn or ridicule or perhaps persecution from others? My friends, if we really want to welcome the blessed king, then we have to do it with all of the gifts that God has given us. God doesn't want you to just 
just put money in an offering plate and then not serve him with love and compassion and joy and mercy, not utilize your spiritual gifts. He wants you to use all that he has given you in honor of him. There's nothing we can do to earn our way to heaven. There's nothing we can do to impress Jesus. So don't get me wrong when I tell you that, right? That he wants all of us. But as we talked about earlier in this morning, the what we give and the way we give it says more about what's going on inside than what's going on outside, doesn't it? Right? If I'm holding back my time and my compassion and my mercy because I've placed other things ahead of Jesus, then even when I do those things occasionally, it's I'm not giving him my all. That says something about what's happening inside. Well, so far we've seen this crowd and some of these disciples here. They've welcomed the king, this blessed king, with obedience. They've welcomed him with their gifts. The third one we see in verses 37 and 38 in Luke 19. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So the third way that they welcome this blessed king is through praise. And notice by, uh, and you may not pick this up here, but this is not just 12. These are not just the inner 12 who are rejoicing in praise. This is the whole crowd. And at this point, there are many followers or disciples of Christ. There are hundreds here at this point in time. And as they're moving now, you know, down from the Mount of Olives and into the city, this gathering more and more attention and more and more crowds keep gathering closer and closer. And all of a sudden, there's this great praise that goes on. Now, remember, these are the same folks who about six days from now are going to be saying what? Crucify him. This is the same crowd. We're saying, crucify him, crucify him. But for now, they're saying what? Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Praise God for him. Praise his name. Peace in heaven, glory in the highest. They're actually quoting something from Psalm 118. Psalm 118 is part of what they call the Hallel in the Psalms, and Hallel means praise. These were praise songs that they would sing in the ascent up to the temple. And so now, again, you can see that that phrase comes in the name of the Lord means that Jesus is coming according to the promise of God. Psalm 118 is a messianic psalm, and it was sung during the Passover meal. My point is that they understand at least why they're doing what they're doing, they're thinking about this king and they're thinking that God has sent him their Messiah. But then you have others in the crowd who are not. Matthew's account tells us they also included the word Hoshana, which means save now, save now, Hoshana. There's this feeling of joy and celebration and exultation, anticipating what's going to come to pass. Look at verse 39 then. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. Now, I love that verse, incidentally. Because they 
want Jesus to reject the claim that the people are shouting. They want him to reject that he's a king. They want him to reject that he, that Hosanna, God save us. They, they want to reject that he's the Messiah. They're offensive to these religious leaders. But notice the answer in verse 40. He says, I tell you, if these people became silent, the stones would cry out. If the disciples didn't speak, Jesus said, then all creation would be shouting in praise about what's about to happen right now. And just as Jesus calmed the wild colt, right, had never been ridden before, he could also command inanimate objects like a rock to sing his praises, right? He's the creator of all things. Jesus is saying, if I stop my disciples from singing this praise, Psalm 118, then you're going to hear a literal rock concert. Sorry. So instead of rebuking the disciples, he rebukes the Pharisees, doesn't he? And he implies that these rocks know more about the joy about what would happen here than you guys do. That nothing can stop this. That God had ordained this from time, from eternity past. And that what is happening now is the most monumental event in history. And if these people weren't shouting in praise, then all of creation would be doing it instead. That that's how significant this is. You remember later in Matthew 27, when Jesus uh, when the Lord, when Jesus gave up his spirit, remember what it says? It said the rocks split and the whole earth shook. Nothing could contain. Let me ask you this. How are you doing at welcoming the king, the blessed king with praise in your life? Do you have moments in your schedule in which you stop and just break into adoration? You turn on the radio sometimes and just sing praise songs just in glory to God. And when you come here on Sundays to worship together, is that just a culmination of what you've been doing all week, or is this the first time this week that you've been singing God's praises? Beloved, God can even make the stones cry out, but he'd rather have us, he'd rather have us be the ones who are singing his praises. We're the ones made in his image. We're the ones who are here we are commanded to worship him how? In spirit and in truth. We are to worship him regularly and loudly and with great joy. And Jesus, Jesus' heart is that people would welcome him. Not only with obedience, not only with their gifts, but also with their praise. And lastly, he wants us to welcome him with our faith. As Jesus makes his way now down the mountain, he sees the whole city in a panoramic view there. He sees it all. He's just kind of scanning the side of the countryside here. And if you ever saw that or you've seen pictures of that, you'd know how beautiful that looks. But Jesus doesn't see it that way. He's not looking at the beauty of it. Matter of fact, he has a quite a different response, doesn't he? And I want you to know that he he sees it, and he's coming down into that city 
not to be respected, but to be rejected. And he knows that as he's looking down at the city. Look at verse 41. When he approaches Jerusalem, he saw the city and does what? He weeps over it. He weeps. I mean, we may be we may be tempted to kind of rejoice in the fact of what Jesus is going to do as he's coming in and people are laying down their coats and the, and the palm leaves and singing Hosanna and praising God. But Jesus doesn't do that. He doesn't say, yeah, yeah, that's right. He cries. He weeps. That word, that word weep doesn't mean like a little tear runs down his eye. It means he's weeping uncontrollably, bitterly, loudly, sobbing. Yeah, little kids cry sometimes. Well, maybe even adults too. He cry, you can't catch your breath. You know, that's what that word means. He's so taken aback. Now, why is he sobbing so, so, so bitterly, so loud, so deeply? Why is that? Because he's not down there to win an argument. He's down there to win people. And he understands what's going to happen and what the price is going to be. He's not worried about his physical health. He's, he's crying over their lost condition. That same word is used in Mark chapter 5 to describe how family members were dying when they lost a young child. That's If you want a picture of what kind of crying is going on here. Everyone else is shouting joyfully, and Jesus is crying because how hard their hearts are and what their eternal destiny will be if they don't turn to him in faith. And he wants people to trust in him. They want him. He wants them to respond in faith. He wants this so much that he weeps when people choose to go their own way and reject him. Three times the Bible tells us about Jesus crying. The first one is in John chapter 11, right? When Lazarus dies, his good friend. Those were tears of sympathy. The second was at the site of Jerusalem. Here today in our text. Those aren't, those are tears of sorrow. The third is in the Garden of Gethsemane. Hebrews chapter 5 verse 7 tells us those were tears of anguish. Remember, his tears were like he was in such anguish that it was blood, droplets of blood in the garden. Well, as he looks out, he feels this deep sorrow for all who are rejecting him, and he cries out. Look at verse 42 to 44. If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you. When your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you on every side, and they will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize this time of your salvation or your visitation. Wow. He just offered salvation to people and they rejected it. As a result, they've lost all of this peace. That chilling prophecy came later in A.D. 70, about 30 years later, didn't it? When the Romans came in, Roman legion came in, surrounded the city, built embankments so nobody could get out. And they attacked the city for four and a half months. And they literally turned it into a pile of rocks. 
600,000 Jews were killed in those four months. Men, women, and children. Brutally massacred. The temple was destroyed, burned, set on fire. And all of this took place because they did not recognize the blessed king who was in their midst already. Beloved, there's a very clear principle here in Jesus' tears. And if you and I don't recognize God's coming in some, in the form of the Lord Jesus, and we don't put our faith in him, then we too are exposed to God's judgment. If we reject Christ, we will face a judgment. That doesn't bring Jesus any pleasure. Notice he's crying. These aren't tears of joy. Those are tears of anguish, tears of sorrow for our hard hearts. That just reveals to us, doesn't it, that God doesn't hate his enemies, those who reject him in their lives. He still loves us. He's still reaching out in the hope that we will turn in faith. Uh, God says in Ezekiel 33, As surely as I live, declares the sovereign Lord, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that they turn from their ways and live. Turn, turn, turn from your evil ways. Why will you die, O house of Israel? I think that his tears reveal his compassion towards you and I. His tears also reveal the coming terror for those who reject him. I'm told that there's a picture, a Rembrandt, a painting of the face of Jesus that's very captivating. If you cover one eye on his face, it looks like there's this joy and happiness. And if you cover the other eye, it looks like Jesus is about to cry. And if you try to look at both eyes at the same time, you see both emotions at the same time as you're staring at this at his face. First one, then the other. First one, then the other. Then the other, then back. I think that's what's going on in the face of Christ here on Palm Sunday. I think that's the same thing. In one eye we see, I am the one who has come in the name of the Lord. Hosanna. In the other eye we see, there will be no peace and only terror of my holy judgment for those who miss the day of my visitation. I think we see it both. Beloved, don't put off this decision any longer. If you've never trusted Christ as your personal Savior, I hope today would be the day when you would welcome the blessed King into your heart. And you would do that through your obedience, through your gifts, through your praise, through your faith. It is a decision you will never forget and one you will never regret. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, again for this reminder here today as we look at Jesus coming in to your city, Lord, the city of David. And we see this mixed reaction, Lord, from the crowd. Some are joyful and happy, and they have a view of the king, this blessed king. They even cry out, blessed king. And yet others see his works, hear his words, and still reject him. And I thank, Lord, as we look at this Palm Sunday and we think about, Father, that mixed reaction, that still goes on today, doesn't it? Still goes on today, Lord, where some hear and respond in faith and welcome them into their lives. 
through their praise and their faith and their obedience. And others continue to reject. Lord, I pray that you would break the hardness around their heart, that you would draw them to yourself, and that they would respond in faith to you. And help us, Father, who have already made that decision, who are already believers, who are sure of our salvation through the shed blood of Jesus Christ. May we continue to welcome the blessed King in our lives through our obedience, through our praise, through the exercise of our gifts, and through our faith. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Let's all stay.